Hey there, thanks for tuning in to St. John's Asheville Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope, and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. Today's first Bible reading comes from Isaiah 62, and if you're following on with me, it's in page 604 of the Red Bible. Otherwise, the words are up there. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest, until her vindication shines out like the dawn, and her salvation like a burning torch. The nations shall see your vindication, and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name, that the word, sorry, that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. You shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your builder marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Upon your walls, O Jerusalem, I have posted sentinels all day and all night. They shall never be silent. You who remind the Lord, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it renowned throughout the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm. I will not again give you your grain to be food for your enemies and foreigners shall not drink the wine for which you have labored. But those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord, and those who gather it shall drink it in my holy courts. Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up an ensign over the peoples. The Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to daughter Zion, see, your salvation comes, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. They shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. Our second Bible reading is from Matthew chapter 21, verse 1 to 11, um, and it's on page 802 of the Red Bible. When they had come near Jerusalem and had reached Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village ahead of you. And immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say this, the Lord needs them. And he will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the fall of a donkey." The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil, asking, Who is this? 
the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. That's the word of the Lord. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Louisa, and I am one of the pastoral staff here at uh, St. John's, part of Christchurch in West, and just want to extend um, my welcome to all of you, just as Miles has uh, this evening. It's great uh, to gather as God's people and to be able to, um, yeah, look at wo- God's word together. Uh, so why don't you join me in prayer, um, and we'll center our hearts on God. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you have revealed yourself to us in your word, but even more so that you have revealed yourself to us in your son. Lord, as we look at uh, the story of your final entrance into Jerusalem, help us to see you more clearly. Lord, may you embolden our hearts to serve you more fully, and may we trust in you, our Lord and Saviour. We pray this in your name. Amen. Simon and I have been to quite a few weddings in the last few months. Uh, we technically were meant to have five weddings in five weeks, but then uh, like the unexpected expected season that we're in, uh, we had one week in COVID isolation and so weren't able to get to one of those five, but um, it was such a, a joyous occasion to be a part of so many weddings and uh, to see and to be able to celebrate with people. Um, And I wonder if you've realised this, uh, the more weddings that you attend, the more you kind of develop an expectation of what the event is going to be like, how how it's going to go. You enter, uh, you arrive on the day, you enter and you're given uh, a service sheet, usually it's beautifully decorated, Uh, you come into the building and there's immense uh, and wonderful flower arrangements, Uh, the room just feels beautiful exciting. Uh, You find a seat and then you wait. Uh, The groom and the groomsmen are up the front um, trying to keep their nerves together, sometimes more successfully than others. More people arrive uh, and you wait some more. Perhaps sometimes you even wait quite a while. Um, But there's a buzz in the room. There's excitement. The eager expectation for the bride's, bride's arrival the joy of the day finally being here. There's a sea of people dressed up, excited, ready and waiting together. Then that moment, the announcement from the front, the bride has arrived. A hush consumes the room in a moment. The music plays. Bridesmaids process down the aisle and in bated breath, the last moment of waiting comes to an end. The music stirs and the bride enters. Awe fills the room with the sight of the incredible dress, the doting joy on the groom's face. It's an overwhelming moment of beauty. A sense of relief. The waiting is done. The service can begin and the start of a new family is inaugurated. Promises made, a kiss shared, songs sung and readings read. Sermon preached, papers signed. Wonder, celebration, joy, beauty and excitement. This is what we expect of a wedding day. 
Imagine that you enter the church for the ceremony um, and you're sitting down and waiting and all of a sudden you realise it's not the groom and the groomsmen who are up the front but the bride and her bridesmaids. And when the wedding started, the groomsmen processed in front of the climactic entrance of a groom. Now, some of you might enjoy that cultural reversal of expectations, but there would still be that element of shock and surprise from engaging in something that defied expectations. Maybe you would enjoy it, but maybe you'd find yourself a little disappointed. You missed out on that moment you were expecting of the bride's arrival. There are many aspects of life, particularly certain life, uh, sorry, certain life events in our community that have a very expected process to them. And the same can be be said for the culture in the ancient Near East. Culture impacts our expectation of how things are meant to work, how they should take place. And one example for that in the people of Israel uh, was the inauguration of a new king. That such event is full of expectation of the ways in which that should happen. Hear these words of David in 1 Kings chapter 1. He says, Take your Lord's servants with you and have Solomon, my son, mount my own mule and take him down to Gahon. There have Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet, anoint him king over Israel, blow the trumpet and shout, Long live King Solomon. there is a triumphant entrance to the city. There's the priest and the prophet anointing the new king with oil, followed by a declaration of loyalty and celebration. This is what the Israelites would be looking for to see if a new king was under God's blessing. And as we look at Matthew 21 today, we see Jesus' final entry into Jerusalem one week before his death and resurrection. But this story confounds our expectations. The events don't unfold exactly like the Jewish audience thought that they would. And yet it's in this very moment of experience of expectations going awry that God's perfect plans and purposes unfold. The Israelite people, they had been waiting for a Messiah for centuries the king in David's line that was meant to be revealed. I don't even like waiting a few days for important news to arrive to me, but imagine having to wait hundreds of years for the Messiah to come. You're always looking, always waiting. And in the book of Matthew, even up until this moment, there's a lot of confusion about who this person Jesus is. Is he a prophet? Is he the Messiah and King? Is he just a person that is going against cultural norms? It's hard for the people to work out. How will Jesus meet the people's expectations and prove once and for all that he is this Messiah, the King, the one who was promised? Even his disciples still don't really have any idea who he is truly or what it means for him to be the Messiah if that's who he is. And so in that moment, they're not looking to install him as king over Israel. This leads us to the first unexpected point in our story. When they have come near to Jerusalem, this is Matthew 21 from verse 1, 
When they had come near to Jerusalem and had reached Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say this, The Lord needs them, and he will send them immediately. No one is organising this event on Jesus' behalf. There's no one guiding the timing of things around him. There's no event planner making sure every detail goes to plan and is all right and ready to go. Now Jesus has done all of the organisation himself. It's not like when Solomon was anointed king, where King David ensured everything was ready, that the priest and the prophet were there to lead the charge. Imagine your local member standing uh, for re-election, And she is the only person to hand out how-to-vote cards on the day across her whole electorate. And at the end of the day, she has to do all of the counting of her balance on her own. While the other candidate has hundreds of people supporting their campaign, it would just be weird and unexpected. And yet, every aspect of Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem is planned by him. The timing of what is going to come is completely controlled by him. We know that earlier on in uh, one of the Gospels that people tried to make him king by force and he just slipped away. He is not rushed or held up by any unforeseen circumstances. He enters Jerusalem in his own timing. And through the prophet, uh, the quote of the prophet shown in Zechariah in the passage, God has revealed the way in which the king and Messiah will enter Jerusalem, what that will look like. And nothing is going to hinder those plans. Even those who own the donkey and the colt, they're just going to let the colt go when the disciples come. Jesus has organised it all. He is completely in control of every moment. And this, this moment of him entering into Jerusalem is a moment of revelation. In some ways, there is an eager expectation to this moment. Everyone is hoping that the Messiah will come. And yet, so much seems unexpected. The people are unsure if Jesus really fits the criteria of what a Messiah is meant to look like. Yet here he is, riding into Jerusalem on a colt. This mode of transport is mirroring Solomon's entry into Gahon and his inauguration as king. And the people were looking for this sign as saying, this is the promised king and Messiah. Jesus is declaring through his entrance that he is the true and royal heir to the throne, the one who will reign with God forever, the one who had been promised. And so as people see this image of him riding on a donkey, they get the message and they respond with this great intensity. The crowds that went ahead of him and followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Uh, the people here crying Hosanna, uh, that literally means salvation or save now. And the crowd is proclaiming that they think it is through Jesus that this salvation will come. 
They seem to, in that moment, recognize that Jesus is God's anointed king by declaring that he comes in the name of the Lord. The crowd is bold with their proclamation over him. And they seemingly, in this moment, accept that he is the person that their hopes and dreams and longings and waitings have been for. And they appear unanimous in the declaration of loyalty. And as we read this, it's hard to think how the crowd here went from joy and celebration of this triumphant entrance to watching Jesus be crucified the following week. What happened? How did that become the story? How did they go from celebrating and accepting him to rejecting that he could possibly be the Messiah? And as we heard uh, the story in Matthew 21 today, I wonder if you noticed anyone who was missing in the little passage that we heard. Hear the words from uh, 1 Kings again, and maybe it will give us a clue into what's missing. David says, Take your Lord's servants with you and have Solomon my son mount my own mule and take him down to Gahon. There have Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel. Blow the trumpet and shout, Long live King Solomon. Whose role was it to anoint a new king? The priest and the prophet. They are the ones who should have been leading the procession of, uh, in front of Jesus, demonstrating to the crowd that this is the king that God has anointed. This is the king that God had blessed. It would ensure that that king's reign was undisputed. Yet here in Matthew, there is no mention in the passage of the Pharisees, of the teachers of the law, or of the high priest. And the statements that the crowd is declaring about Jesus, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest heaven. Well, that should have actually been made first and foremost by the Pharisees and the high priest. They should have been the ones who knew the Old Testament, knew who was promised, knew that Jesus was the King and Messiah. And yet they are absent. They refuse to recognize the king that Jesus is. The Jewish people, along with the Pharisees and teachers of the law, thought that the king they were waiting for was solely an earthly king that was meant to defeat the Roman Empire and rescue them from their rule. They are concerned only with the here and now and have missed God's eternal plan of the heavenly king, Jesus the Messiah. In all of their waiting and the formation of expectation for this moment, they have misunderstood who they are waiting for and what the Messiah would look like. Jonathan Merritt, uh, who writes in Christianity Today on how our brains are wired around expectation uh, and the impact on on us when our experiences uh, of expectation go unmet, he says this, Your brain generates expectations about the future. Often these expectations are based on what you want. Sometimes you perceive as good has happened in the past, so you often begin to expect it will happen again in the future. Before it even happens, your dopamine levels begin to rise in the rush of anticipation. Then, when the good actually occurs, 
you get a double shot of dopamine. But here's the rub. Life doesn't always give us what we expect. People fail us. People hurt us. People lay us on the altars of their own selfishness. And when you don't get the desired result, researchers call this a reward prediction error. Not only do your dopamine levels fall, they plummet from the heightened level generated by your expectations. The Pharisees, teachers of the law, the high priest, expected that the Messiah would bolster their power and might over the people and to assure them that they were the righteous ones, the faithful ones. And yet, instead, Jesus is con- was constantly challenging their assumptions, challenging the religious leader to look at their heart, to see that they were actually far from God, not close to him. The Jewish community was looking for liberation from the oppression of Roman rule. Ever since the Israelites went into exile, they have been under the power of other nations. And they believed, as we heard in Isaiah 62, that God was going to bring them freedom and abundance apart from the oppressive rulers. And so they had this expectation of what the king and Messiah was going to look like. Now, 200 years prior to Jesus' arrival on earth, a man named Judas Maccabeus, a freedom fighter, came towards Jerusalem to, um, to free it from oppression. And as he entered, as he approached the city and entered, people waved palm branches and they sang hymns. And when Judas finally arrived in the city, he defeated the Syrian king, recaptured the temple, expelled the pagans, and reigned for a century before the Romans took the city back. Can you see the parallels there with their expectations of one ruler in the past, how they celebrated him, how they were looking forward to that freedom again, how everything about Jesus' entrance mirrored that expectation. The crowd was overwhelmed by the possibility of freedom, of Jesus being the conquering and victorious king that they had waited for. But then the crowd realises there's no religious leaders here supporting this man. Questions arise. Well, how could this man, Jesus, be be the Messiah if the Pharisees don't follow him? Then there's no rebellion against the emperor the moment that Jesus arrives into Jerusalem. Actually, if you look at what happens just after this passage... Jesus once again challenges the religious structures of the people of God and he reveals the emptiness of the Pharisees' worship. Excitement turns to confusion, then to doubt and despair, and then to anger. How could this man Jesus be the Messiah? Maybe he is the one who's actually in the wrong. We can see why the Pharisees call this man dangerous. Crucify him. Yet all along, these expectations were feeble, self-focused, unimaginative. The disappointment in unmet expectations was real. 
And yet their expectations were ultimately founded apart from God's plans for salvation and for good. And I wonder if we too get caught up in the disappointment and disillusionment of unmet expectations. Perhaps when we first believed in the good news of Jesus, we were excited and eager followers of him. Perhaps others promised us that the pathway of being a Christian meant that your life was going to be smooth and uncomplicated. But then we were faced with moments of real hardship or immense hurt or devastating loss. And perhaps, understandably, those moments caused us to doubt, to become disappointed with God. Why didn't I get that job? Why couldn't that person I was dating end up being my spouse? Why is it that I am suffering with this illness? How come God hasn't brought a resolution to all of my longings for my plans and hopes of the future? And perhaps it drives us to wonder whether God is worth following at all. Perhaps my life would actually be better off without him. Perhaps he isn't as good as I first thought. I know at times when I've experienced uh, real moments of hardship, these thoughts and questions have raged in my own heart and mind. Of course they do. But perhaps in part these questions and wonderings exist because of our expectations of God that are not fully founded in his promises. And yet there's still a tension here, isn't there? If we go back to the people in the story in Jerusalem, the Jewish people expected Jesus to liberate them from oppressive rule of the Romans. They wanted a leader of might and victory. But Jesus was humble, a servant king. He wasn't a political tyrant. And yet he came not to just free one people group at one time in history, but he came to free all of humanity from the power of sin and death for those who choose to follow him as their king. Even in the unfounded expectation that the people had of Jesus in that moment, there was also something true in that hope, the hope for a king who would have victory. But it would be achieved by different means, not through a sword, but through the cross. Death and resurrection to new life. And in that, Christ wins for us a sure expectation of eternal victory and freedom from sin and death for all of eternity a much greater expectation and joy that we get to share in. And so too are the wonderings and longings and questions of our heart are based partly in unmet and unreasoned expectations, but also expectations that are true and real. Sometimes we have expectations about God, about how he should work and how he should live uh, out his promises in this world and in our lives. But God doesn't promise us that our life will be smooth and protected from hardship. What he does promise us instead is that he will be with us in and through every season. 
And yeah, that longing that we have for good and for wholeness and for wellness is not an unfounded expectation either. Because God's desire for humanity is not suffering and brokenness. He does not ultimately delight in those realities for us. And he enacted through Jesus the ability to be free from death and sin and suffering and evil for all eternity. He won that through Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross. And he promises for us an eternity in his good and perfect presence. So how do we navigate our expectations of God? Sometimes our expectations of this world can be a good thing. We live in a world which has many spaces of predictability and order, like the expectations of what a wedding day will be like, or that the sun will rise and set each day, no matter what else is going on in the world, whether war or pandemics or anything else. Or how we can be certain that a season of rain will come to an end and like the joy today of the sun coming out again. But these good spaces where we grow to have expectations as we experience the world can lead us to also place expectations on spaces that they were never meant to be. Expectations of how God is meant to react and enact his plans and purposes in this world not based on what the scriptures say, but based on our own assessments of what he should be doing. So how do we hold our expectations loosely? How do we not follow the path of the people standing with God, with with Jesus, declaring him king one week and then standing against him to crucify him the next? How do we hold our expectations loosely? And I think the two things that we need to do is to have an attitude of humility and to be willing to trust. I think in humility, we need to be open that our expectations sometimes of God are unfounded. Sometimes God is actually going to challenge our expectations. He's going to shape and reconfigure them to be more what he has in store for us and for this world. But we do that not in separation from him, but in in close relationship as we walk with him. And secondly, a willingness to trust that even in the moments where we are disappointed by unmet expectations, that we know who God is, that we know that when Jesus came that he truly was the Lord and Messiah, that God is a God who is good, that he is faithful, that he does not abandon us, and he's working to bring all things under his loving care. We may not fully experience how God is doing this on this side of eternity, but we can be sure and have expectations that the God who conquered the grave through his son will bring all things in this world to restoration and completion. Jonathan Merritt, he concludes his examination of expectations with this. What we experience as disappointment is an invitation to give up holding tight to what we hope is true. To stop trying to cast God in our image. To let God be who God is, not who we wish God would be. The choice is ours. And who knows, if we decide to step off the dopamine roller coaster 
Maybe we'll find ourselves at the foot of the cross, giving up all we have for the one who gave up everything for us. For Jesus confounds our expectations. But even more than that, in knowing him, he also exceeds our expectations. God might not always act in the way that we think or deem is best, but he is weaving a far greater story than we could ever expect or imagine. And we as his people have the incredible blessing of being sewn and woven into the tapestry of our maker. And that we can be sure that all things will be brought into, the fruition, into fruition through, through our saviour, Jesus Christ. For he walked the road into Jerusalem. He walked the path to death on a cross for us. He met our expectations in ways that we didn't expect. He confounded our expectations. And yet he exceeded them by not bringing salvation to just a certain people at a certain time, but that he won salvation for all people who believe in him. This is the King and Messiah that we can know and love and serve. And this is a Messiah that we can grow to know the expectations of the future that we have with him. This is our God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we so thank you for your son, that he walked the path before him into Jerusalem and all the way to the cross. Lord, sometimes our expectations don't match up with our experience of you, and that can leave us in disappointment and disillusionment. Help us to have humble hearts that we might have loose hands to the things that we expect and that you might shape us to see you more clearly, that you are a God of love and of goodness. And we pray that you might help us to trust you even in moments where our expectations are confounded and that you might show us who you truly are in the ways in which you act in ways that are far greater than we could ever imagine or expect. And that we know with certainty that our expectations of the future are sure that we might live with you forever. For you are our God and King. Amen.